Welcome to the Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. An author historian named uh, Wilder Smith, um, in his book, uh, The Day Nazi Germany Died, um, He says one of the central planks in Nazi theory and doctrine was evolutionary theory and that all biology had evolved upward and that less evolved types should be actively eradicated and that natural selection could and should be actively aided and therefore the Nazi institute, the Nazis instituted political measures to eradicate Jews and blacks whom they considered as underdeveloped. Um, in the Nazi Germany party, the, as the idea of eugenics moved forward, um, they were frustrated with the medical field because the medical field was, in their minds, the medical field was enabling people of lesser genetic um, standing to reproduce and to live happy, healthy lives. And so in the mind of the eugenicist, um, and the father of eugenics was actually the cousin of Charles Darwin, um, so fully embraces evolutionary theory, um, in, the, in their mind to help someone who was sick continue to live a happy and healthy life and reproduce was to work against natural selection. Okay, now let me put that against our Constitution here. Our Constitution um, says that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. All men created equal, endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. Those two worldviews are incredibly pitted against one another. Okay? And so don't hear me say that, um, that anyone who believes in evolutionary theory is automatically going to lean into eugenics or extreme racism. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that when, when Darwin wrote his origins, origins of species, um, which interestingly enough, Genesis, the word Genesis means origins. When Darwin wrote his origins, he extracted from that, that origin narrative God. He removed the idea of creation. He removed the idea of intention and care and purpose. And when he extracted God, he opened up the door for this idea that there are lesser evolved people groups who should be eradicated. Does this make sense? Our worldview is incredibly important. And so the the Judeo-Christian worldview, which no matter what anyone says, the Constitution is clearly founded upon, like the idea that everyone has certain inalienable rights given from a creator, that's a Judeo-Christian value. You can't get rid of that. Um, That idea says that those who are disabled, weak, we should care for, we should help and aid. And so, um, for instance, there are nations in the earth today whose their, their big statement is that they have they have, they have cured Down syndrome. They haven't cured Down syndrome. They've aborted all their children who had Down syndrome in the womb. That's not curing Down syndrome. So the Judeo-Christian worldview says that those who are born with deficiencies or who are struggling with sickness, they actually, because they are created in the image of God with the intention and value and care of God, we care for them. We don't murder them. This, this is important stuff. Okay, and so when we get ready to start looking at our community and we get ready to start preaching the gospel, we look at every person as if God created them with intentional care and purpose and value. And it doesn't matter how low they live today. I don't care how poor they are, how sick they are, how beaten down and out they are. There is purpose somewhere locked up inside of their bones. The image of God is stamped there. 
Same for the rich, the middle class, all people created in the image of God. That's a Judeo-Christian worldview that is rooted in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. In, in our origin narrative. You guys understand what I'm saying? So if you'll give me like six or seven weeks, I want to kind of meticulously work through these chapters and just keep asking of the narrative, what do you want us to know about life? What were you trying to teach us? And so um, scholars believe that Moses, um, obviously Moses wrote the entire of the Pentateuch, um, gave Genesis um, in the Exodus, gave Genesis in the, I know that's confusing, but during the Exodus, he gave Genesis. Um, and there are some things that, that, that Moses was trying to say to Israel in that moment. What are the things he was trying to say? There are not multiple gods. There's one God. You belong to him. He's created you with purpose. And so it's, a lot of people believe, and I think this is actually a, a fairly strong argument, that even in the ten plagues, that there are Egyptian gods who might uh, go with certain plagues, for instance, there's the God of the Nile. And so when God turns the entire Nile and all of the water into blood, it may be that the Egyptians would have ran to that God and pleaded with that God to fix the problem. But, but Yahweh is saying to them, you can't fix the problem. I'm the master of the Nile River. And, and we know this for a fact, that, that the Pharaoh viewed himself as some type of God. And the entire point of that narrative is that Yahweh throws Pharaoh in utter panic. He cannot get his life, his, his, his kingdom together. And so God is establishing throughout Genesis, Exodus, throughout the Pentateuch, that this narrative that there is one God that we belong to. He's the maker of heavens and the earth and that he created people in his image. Do you guys understand the like differences that start to hash out? If there's a, sorry, because I feel like I need to explain the full idea here. If there were, if we were polytheist, um, I don't have this in my notes. I could find, I could, I could back this, but I don't have the actual source here. Um, but there was an author, I believe his name was C.H. Dodd, and he wrote um, a history of the advancement of Christianity in the West. And one of the things he said that one of the reasons he was secular, he wasn't a Christian. One of the reasons he said that Christianity really took root and and, and advanced so quickly was because. Um, the Greco-Roman world had lived so long with a polytheistic worldview. And what he was saying was that um, when there are thousands of gods or hundreds of gods, when, when you're sick, which one do you go to? And what if this god over here is mad at you? Do you plead with this god to appease that god? Or do you just keep... And so he said that one thing that happened was Christianity boldly pro- proclaimed to Gentiles. Obviously, the, the Jewish world had been proclaiming this. But when Christianity opened the door to Gentiles, that you could come to the one supreme God and not live in fear of a hundred little gods who could be messing with you or your children at night, but you could come to the one supreme that, that Christianity kind of blew up. And so, so that's the point, is that we're, we're not under a polytheistic system. And so I'm not fearful of the God of rain or the God of whatever. Like, like I believe that, that Yahweh, our God, is supreme, that all of creation submits to his will. Do you, do you guys catch what I'm saying here? Okay, so Genesis chapter 1. I'm just going to read to you the first um, couple lines, and we're going to try to extract from that the way in which those three verses affect our worldview, our life, the way that we envision our future and our children's future and our grandchildren's future. And this is what um, it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, that's where I want to stop. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, As a kid, I was um, fascinated with the idea um, of who created God. If the universe gives us this chain of causality, right? Like if I came from my father who came from his father, and if there's this, like, imagine a chain link thing that keeps pushing back, and everything comes from something. There's a, there's a cause that, that produces everything. Um, and so the, the, the question that I wrestled with, I, I can remember being four or five, is if, if everything comes from something, then where did God come from? And I remember asking some spiritual leaders, asking around, where did God come from? And the answer I kept getting was, um, don't ask that question. That's too big of a question. Um, when you're doing logic, logic as a kind of a science, there, there is a logical fallacy called the, what is often called the category error. And so a category error is doing something like this. A category error is saying, what does blue smell like? And it, like, we know that blue doesn't smell, right? Like you, you're asking something of something that, that can't be asked of. And so when you ask, who created God? You're assuming that God was created. You're assuming that God is under the laws of nature. That God is bound by time, space, and matter. That's a category error. Genesis says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so God is not bound by time, space, and matter. He binds time, space, and matter. You understand that? And so, so we need to teach our kids that, right? Like, like God is eternal, he, he existed always. He is the ultimate cause. And so there is um, in debate, in modern debate about God, there's a lot of debate going on about the existence of God um, between the sciences. Um, there's an argument, a logical argument that's been around forever. I think Thomas Aquinas um, in the like 14th century was one of the first persons to make this argument. It's called the cosmological argument. And the cosmological argument is essentially this, that um, is that everything comes from something. So there's a chain of causes so either the chain itself is eternal or there is some uncaused cause that started the chain. So either history, uh, either the universe is eternal and always has been, or there is someone outside of the bounds of the universe that initiated it, that created it. The cosmological argument is the argument for an uncaused God. So Genesis 1 declares emphatically that God is not created. He is eternal. The uncaused cause that brought about the entirety of the universe. In my view, and this, this, I know this is a little heady, but I promise you there's an application here we're going to get to. In my view, there are essentially three options that people go to. Number one, people may claim that the universe is eternal, and that's really where evolutionary theory kind of goes, is that the, that, um, that something in the universe, maybe a multiverse, has always existed and that the universe came about by this cosmic explosion that produced um, life somehow and uh, life evolved from. And so in that view, people hold to the idea that maybe the world has always existed. Maybe the universe has always been. 
Um, the problem with that is that science itself tells us that the world has not always existed. That, that Hubble d- discovered in 1929 really quick that the universe is expanding. And so the scientists discovered what, what we always knew from Genesis chapter 1, that the, uni- the universe is not eternal, but the universe had a beginning, a moment of origin. You guys understand that? And so that view is out of the water really quick. The other view is polytheism, is the idea that, which, which a lot of um, ancient Eastern worldviews believe. Um, so like there's, there's stories of Babylonian gods who got in a fight and they, they destroyed each other. And when one spilled blood, out comes humankind out of God blood. Or the Nile River, River somehow birthed us with the sun. Some kind of polytheistic thing. Um, the problem there is, is that, that all you've done is, if you revert to a polytheistic system, that maybe there's a plurality of gods, is all you've done is place the question mark of cause further along. Okay, so if there are multiple gods who exist, who created the multiple gods? Those gods are not eternal. You guys understand what I'm saying? You just move the question mark. And so one common thing that's going around is that, um, like Darwin, will, or Darwin um, Dawkins will say this a lot, is that maybe there is some highly evolved, essentially, he won't use this phrase, but essentially alien life form who is incredibly technologically advanced who created us. Um, I, don't, I think that's just polytheism. I think you're just reverting to a, a system of polytheism. Um, and I think it's weak. It doesn't answer the question of existence. There's no argument there. All you've done is move the question mark. You've just taken it from, from A to B. That, but, but Genesis in chapter 1 answers the question of causality. It says God created. God is outside of time, space, and matter. He's the Lord of matter, not vice versa. Do you guys understand that? So the application to that idea... Well, let me say this. Um, in simple terms, God did not come from anything. God always existed in perfect completeness. Um, we believe that he created, this is a Latin phrase, ex nihilo, um, is what the, uh, what, what the church has always believed. That means that God created matter out of nothing. God, when, when, when we go to procreate or to plant a tree or whatever, we need matter to produce. God is the Lord of matter and not vice versa. He created merely with his voice. He just spoke it. And so let me tell you how that matters. Um, When there's a cancerous tumor that's inflicting someone's brain, God is not intimidated by that hunk of matter. He's the Lord of matter. And so God's voice can tell that matter to dissolve. And when we have a young boy or girl who's struggling um, with muscle development, Although there may be a lack of matter, all it takes is for God to speak. And his voice is the Lord of matter. He can speak and cause muscle to come out of nowhere. And so when someone's dead and all of natural law says that there's no way that this person can come back, history shows us that hundreds and thousands of times God has spoken and caused the dead to rise again. And so Jesus just says to Lazarus, get up, come out. And so we don't live, listen to me, this is application. We don't live intimidated by the material world. Our God is the Lord of the material world. And furthermore, he is also the Lord of the heavens. 
And so we're not intimidated by any other false little God that's floating around out there. Any demon that wants to exalt itself as a, as a, as a God, we're not intimidated by. Because the spiritual realm submits, it bows its na- knee to the name of Jesus. Because God created the heavens and the earth. He is the supreme. Do you guys understand that? Catch me? Sorry, I'm just trying to make sure you're with me. And because God is outside of, when, it, when, when Genesis 1 says, God created the heavens, a lot of people say, believe that means space. You know, the like idea of space, the idea of openness. He created the earth. That's the idea of matter in the beginning. And so God created time. He initiated time. And so if God is outside of those three things, we do not have to be intimidated by the future. Because God has perfect foreknowledge. God is outside of time. He's in the beginning and the end. You don't have to walk around with fear and anxiety of what is to come. God is outside of time. You guys catch the implications of that? And so when our kids are fearful or they worry about the future, we assure them from Genesis chapter 1 that God is outside of time. He is eternal. He's seen your beginning and your end. I can look my daughter in the eyes with absolute confidence and say that God has a purpose and plan for you, and He is working all things together for your good. With absolute confidence. Because our worldview says so. Says that our God is the supreme. Number two, in those first lines of Genesis, this takes a little bit of biblical interpretation, um, but we believe that all of Scripture is breathed out by the Holy Spirit, and so you interpret Scripture by Scripture, you learn from Scripture from Scripture. It's a consistent voice, a consistent testimony. And so from Genesis chapter 1, we get the idea that God created the heavens and the earth, and that the Spirit is hovering the water. And so already we see two persons in the Trinity who existed before time, space, and matter. And then John tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things that were made were made through Him, and nothing that was made was made without Him. That in the beginning, there was also a third being, which he relates to the Word of God. And so this is a bit of a philosophical idea, but it's essentially this, um, that it could be. I think, I think this is true. That um, if you recorded this sermon and you played it back to me tomorrow and you said, Caleb, is that you? I would say, yes, that's me. Although it's not my matter, right? You heard my voice and it's the essence of me. Like I'm communicating through my words, everything that's me. These are my thoughts. This is my, maybe, maybe these, this thought life is even more me than my flesh. It's when you hear my words, you're hearing the essence of me, but those words aren't my matter. Does that make sense? And so it may be that John is saying um, in chapter 1 that in the beginning God spoke and there was a, there was a third part of God. His, his voice, his active working agent voice that wasn't him, it wasn't his, his person, but it was his exact essence. And so everything that I say is from me, it's, it's me, it's my exact essence. You are learning something about Caleb through my voice. And in the same sense, John, John tells us in chapter 1 that everything that Jesus does, you're learning something about God. He's the Word. He's, he's the exact imprint, the exact essence of God. And so Colossians 1.15 says that He's the image of the invisible God. He's the, Hebrews 1, He's the exact imprint of His nature. And so through a little biblical interpretation, we, we come to the conclusion um, 
with all of church history, Tertullian, um, in, in the early third century, a church father and scholar, um, was already saying that when, when, when God says in Genesis, we'll create man in our image, that that idea of our spirit word, that in the early chapters of Genesis, we're already coming to this, this conclusion that God is a tri-personal monotheistic God. One essence, three persons. So in the opening chapters of Genesis, we get that there are three persons in the Godhead. Now, this matters for a couple reasons. Um, we do not believe that God created us out of need. Okay? God existed eternally in abundance, in completeness. When the scripture says that God is holy, that means he's other, he's separate, he's perfectly complete, he's absolutely and utterly whole. And so God existed before eternity in completeness. And so I, you know, when we're working with young people, I tell them this. I say that if you want to date because you're lonely or because you're, you can't really say this, but essentially what I'm saying, because you're needy, this relationship's going to sink. You don't, you don't, you don't plug yourself into someone and try to draw all your emotional energy out of your spouse, boyfriend or girlfriend. It just doesn't work. You plug yourself into Jesus and you learn to overflow with God's goodness. And then you enter into a relationship out of the overflow. So when I come to my spouse, because I've been in prayer, I don't need her to affirm me. I've been affirmed by God because I'm overflowing with God's goodness. I can affirm her. So I'm dating out of the, I'm dating, marrying out of the overflow, not out of the lack. And so in the same sense, um, when you have kids, you don't have kids because you're lonely. You, in, in the proper sense, oh Lord, you don't, um, whoo. What initiated the um, Adam and Eve conversation in the pool was my daughter was asking me why my hairs were turning gray. And I said, baby, I'm, I'm getting old. And she said, why do people get old? I'm not, I'm not really getting old. I want, what, the truth is you stress me out, girl. Y'all wearing me out. That's why my hair is going gray. So the, the biblical idea of marriage is that a man and woman come together in love and intimacy out of serve, out to serve one another, to care and cherish one another. And when they come together and they, they unite their marriage in the marriage bed, they reproduce out of their abundance, not out of their need. And so people often ask um, or make the claim that God created us because he needed worship or he needed something from us. God didn't create us because he needed anything. He created us out of the overflow of love and joy and peace that already existed within the Trinity. God was not lonely. He had perfect fellowship within the three persons of the Godhead. And so um, he didn't create us out of a need for communion. He wasn't lonely or needy in any way. He created us out of an overflow of communion. He created us out of incredible love, joy, peace that already existed in the Godhead. And he created you just to experience it, to live in it. So if that's the case, then we disagree with polytheism. We're, we're not created by some divine chaotic battle, or we didn't come out of being of some random cause of unusual events, but by the intentional overflow of perfect communion and love that uh, at our very foundation, we were created for intimacy with that Godhead. So again, polytheism says some God had a fight and somebody spilled blood and you came. Christianity the biblical worldview says that God existed perfectly in peace. And out of that peace and love, 
He came together and created us so that we could experience his joy. Not because he needed something from us necessarily, but he created us to, ex- to, to experience the overflow of who he is. Does this make sense? We were given the capacity in creation by God to love him and his creation. He intended that we live in relational joy. If our worldview is grounded within this idea of Trinitarianism, we understand that God never lacks love for me. If God's needy, then when you come to God, he might not have what you need. But, but, but that's not what we believe. We believe God, God overflows. He's perfectly whole and complete. There's not a moment that I come to God and say, God, I need peace. I'm broken and I'm hurting. I need your joy. There's not a moment that he lacks that. He spills it out of his being into creation. Creation is this divine spilling of God's goodness. Number three, give me just a a minute to address this issue. Um, If God exists, which Genesis 1 claims, as the ultimate absolute of the universe, God is the cornerstone, you know, like the the undergirding that the, that, you know, the song, he holds the whole world in his hands. He's sovereign over the, if God absolutely exists, then therefore absolutes exist. Truth exists. And, and truth is, in essence, a reflection of who God is. Um, Ravi Zacharias, one of the leading um, apologists of our day, he's brilliant. He says one of the, the biggest problems in our universities and in our culture um, is he says that we have a devout commitment to relativism. And relativism is the idea that there is no such thing as truth. That, that Jesus may be true for me, but he may not be true for you. Relativism is the idea that, 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 that essentially we're all living in a big opinion and that we should, we should coexist with kindness towards one another and you, we should be able to say, Jesus is my God, but you live however you want to live because you can have your own truth. This doesn't even work experientially, for the record. Like, I don't, I, I would love if I get to get, if I'm doing 85 and a 60 and I get pulled over, I would love to be able to say to the officer, sir, that may be true for you that I was going 85. I was going 60. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, that would be awesome. Uh, tell her, I, it may be true for you that I only have $10 in my bank account, but I have millions. So I'm just going to keep swiping that card. Um, it's, it's not, that's not even the fabric of existence. You understand? Like, we, it's, it's not what scripture teaches. It's not what we believe. Relativism, um, we, we, the idea of your truth, my truth, morality becomes um, you, you know, in the, in the judges, it uses this phrase a lot, that every man did what was right in his own eyes. Um, and w- one thing that's, that's really goofy, if you just give me a second, um, with, with what's being taught in our universities, and when I, when I talk and interact with college-age kids who are, who are in the university, um, is they'll say things like, morality is relative. Or they'll say this, that the, a, a society, when a society comes together, they get to decide what, what, is, what morality really is. Or what's right or wrong. And what, what just doesn't make sense about that is um, what I always say to him is like, okay, um, if you could go back 100 years, however many years, 80 years, to Nazi Germany, the society decided that eradicating Jews, blacks, anyone with mental illness was appropriate. That that was the moral decision to do. Do you, 
your, your system says that that's okay. Does that make sense? Like, like to say that morality is, is relative or, or defined by a society is to give, um, in the East, like in, in Asia, there are some countries where like child prostitution is completely normal. For a little boy to work the streets and be molested all day long for financial gain is considered okay. And I'm allowed to stand on this biblical foundation and say with absolute, because God is absolute, that that is absolutely evil. I have the grounding, the foundation to say no. That is, and I can look at Nazi Germany and say wrong. And I can look at slavery in the, in the states and say that is evil. And I can look at the agenda, uh, a million agendas today, um, abortion for instance, and say that's evil. It's murder. It's destroying the image of God in the womb. I, I can say that with emphatic truth because of the worldview that scripture has given me. But if you, if we submit or if we keep teaching our kids and keep leaning into this worldview, um, that there is no creator and that, that we're all just kind of developing and morphing and history is developing and morphing. If you submit to that, you have no right to say that's wrong. And what's really goofy is like, you can't even do science that way. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can't, you can't use the scientific method and say like, oh, it was true for me this time. Like, we call that a lie. Like, you lied. Okay? So why does that matter? When Jesus in John 14, 6 says, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one gets to come to the Father lest he comes by me. That is consistent with our worldview. He's saying with an absolute that he is the only way. There are there is no plurality of ways. When I was in college, um, I would uh, I mean I was probably eighteen. I was not a, not incredibly well biblically versed, um, but I had a friend who was trying to like wrestle with with the scriptures, and he came to me and he said, um, "What if Allah and Yahweh are the same person? And what if Jesus is one way to him, and Muhammad is one way to him?" Um, and 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 this is like a common thought. And and the point is is that. There, Jesus claims to be the only way. And Allah and Yahweh are not the same gods. Not at all. Like Yahweh is this, this tri-personal God of love who created you with intention and care, invites you into a relationship, who would forgive you, who would take upon your own punishment. He would wear your wrath. And Muhammad says of Allah that Allah has no son. That Allah, um, that, that it's arrogant to say that you're, you have a relationship with Allah. Allah is, is distant. He's separate. He's something totally different than Yahweh. They're two separate gods. And so, no, emphatically, no, they can't be the same way to the same God. They define themselves as different. Jesus says, I am the singular truth. He is the ultimate, prevailing, superior truth. All truth exists in him and from him. And, listen to this, he is the singular life in John 1. In him, life was. What is the point of John 1? In him, life was. The point is this, that in everyone else, death was. That when Jesus came, the the Greek word is uh, zoe. Jesus had real life in his ribcage. And everyone else walked around with real decay. Their inner man is in this progressive state of decaying. And Jesus entered the scene, carrying around within him what he calls abundant life. The only life. He is the life. 
There is absolutely no life outside of him. He is the author and creator and the sustainer of true, abundant life. You can't have it outside of Jesus. That's his claim, and we can make that claim from our worldview. And so our proclamation to our city is that if you exist outside of perfect communion and fellowship with Jesus because of the cross of Calvary, not because of your works, then you do not exist with real joy, with real peace, with real hope, with real goodness. But if you exist inside of Christ, you can experience an overflow of God's intentional, what he intended for you to have in life. So Jesus says, out of your belly will flow, will flow, not fro. There's not going to be a fro coming out of your belly. Unless you got a little bit too much belly hair coming on. That's a different story. Out of your, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. Living water. Real life. Real joy. Real hope. You can have it only in Jesus, though. He's the only way, the only truth, the only life. You can have it nowhere else. Because there is a singular, unchanging, triune God that the entire universe was created by and is continually sustained by, there must be absolutes. And that God has declared through the revelation of the Scripture and the incarnation of Jesus that Jesus is the singular means of fellowship with Him. And that in it, Jesus, you can experience the life that you were created for. And that, my friend, is what we call logically consistent. That is Founded, built upon the, the logically consistent worldview that Genesis gives us in just the first couple sentences. So we don't believe in relativism. We don't believe all roads lead to Rome. Remember that, that John says of Jesus in, in, in chapter 1 that he was filled with grace and truth, that he also existed, he, he came to exegete, that's a hard thought to communicate, he came to um, explain the truth of God. He was the expository paper, if you will, of God's absolute truth. But he came so doing that in grace, and so he communicated, he existed, watch Jesus, he existed within the perfect love of the Trinity, I do nothing that I don't hear the Father. I say everything that I hear the Father say. I do everything that the Father tells me to do. Um, the Father says, like, um, I'm pleased. with This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus exists within perfect love, fellowship, joy, grace within the Trinity. And then he communicates, he exposits the only truth within his personhood. And be- because of that, we can live with a worldview that says there are emphatic, emphatically absolutes, but we can do so while walking in grace, love, compassion. And so in all of that, we teach our kids, declare to our community that um, number one, God is able to heal. He is able to provide. He is able to cause something out of nothing. God, God's spoken word is the ultimate power that created all of the universe. And so we tell our kids, um, we in faith believe God to deal with sickness 
In faith, we believe God to cause things to grow. In faith, we believe that God can cause a dead man spiritually to be born again. That the Holy Spirit can rejuvenate a person. And number two, we teach our kids in our community that, that this God that we proclaim from Genesis 1, this God is not needy. He's not in lack, but he actually creates out of his overflow, out of his abundance. We proclaim to our community that you can live and peace, life and joy, and you can experience hope because God is emphatically peace, life and joy and hope. He is the absolute definition of love. And you cannot have real love outside of him. And because that God is the absolute which spoke and caused all things to come into being, and because that God has revealed himself to us through the incarnation of Jesus, then there are absolutely absolutes. There is truth. We don't say with Pilate, what is truth? Do you remember when Jesus stands before him? What is truth? That philosophical question. We, we believe in absolutes, and we believe we know the absolute way, and we believe that God has revealed the absolute way through the incarnation of Jesus. So why does that matter? Because when, when political parties come forward and say stuff like, um, the life in the womb doesn't matter, we can throw it away. Or they say things like, which is, this is, this is still a thought. I've, I heard, a, um, prevailing scientists say the other day that if he was given the option um, you probably read this before. If he was given the option to choose between a baby pig and a, and a baby person, he would have no moral reason to choose the person over the pig. That, that there's no real reason to believe that people are any more important in the evolutionary chain process than animals. Um, and we just say emphatically from the text, no. Like, no, that, that's, that doesn't even make sense. What, what's crazy is that we're, we're trying so hard hard to avoid what we understand just by basic experience none of I, if i tell my little girl um hey we're gonna we have an option to kill a baby or a pig and we're gonna choose to kill the baby my little girl's gonna scream no not because she even understands the genesis worldview but because god has put in her something we call the image of god and in that little girl although it is fallen and marred because of sin in that little girl is a moral compass and, and, and yes, I agree, fallen, marred, she's going to sin. But she still understands that there is value in life. In basic experience of life, in our experiential existence, we understand that, that God's image is, is marked. We understand from our experience that you can't tell the cop, I think I was going to 40. Which you might be able to argue that his radar detector needs to be calibrated or whatever, which more power to you. But you don't get to, you don't get to appeal to relative truth. You guys, you guys follow me? Okay, let's stand to your feet. Jody, would you come bang on the keys for us? Come tickle the ivory, so to speak.
Lord, we worship you today. We appreciate the word of God that you've given us. God, we celebrate and proclaim that you're outside of time, space, and matter so we don't live in fear or in bondage of what could come. We acknowledge and celebrate that you created us out of an overflow, not out of a lack. And that you even said that in us there would be an overflow. God, we cling to that that word that Jesus spoke, that out of our bellies would flow rivers of living water. And so prophetically, we declare that over this house today. That we don't have to live in lack, but we can live in abundance because of what you said, Jesus. We're clinging to that word this morning. Calls us to overflow with your character, with your kindness, with your goodness. For heaven's sake, let love, joy, peace, patience well up within us. And Lord, we thank you that we don't have to live in fear of how to get to heaven. We don't have to live in fear of You being frustrated with us or rejecting us. God, I don't have to live in fear of what you think about me because you've declared to us in absolute truth in the incarnation of Jesus in the cross of Calvary. You've declared absolutely to us that you love us and that you would provide atonement for our failures. That you would wash us of our shortcomings. We celebrate that this morning. So as we close, if you just take a moment, um, just extend your hands and let's just for a moment, just express your love and gratitude to Jesus. And I'll lead you. Jesus, you're wonderful. We thank you, God. It's only in you that we have life, God. We're desperate for more of you, God. Our cry is that you would continue to fill us. Our cry is for a greater move of your spirit, for a greater revelation of your goodness, God. We want this community, the surrounding community, to touch Jesus when they touch us, to touch real, abundant life. We love you, God. We're thankful. We're thankful, Jesus. We're thankful, Jesus. Hallelujah. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen, amen. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Be sure to visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources.